0: Welcome, everyone, to the Telomer Emerging Markets podcast. My name is Hasnan Malik. I cover emerging markets and frontier markets equity strategy here at Telomer. It is my great pleasure to welcome onto this podcast Charlie Robertson, uh, someone who's been looking at emerging markets for over 25 years, someone who really has, uh, I think, set the gold standard for economics and strategy research, particularly in frontier markets, uh, during his time, not only at Renaissance Capital, but now in his uh, role as head of macroeconomic strategy at FIM Partners. Uh, I'm very excited to have Charlie on the podcast to discuss specifically his most recent book, which is entitled, The Time-Traveling Economist, Why Education, Electricity, and Fertility Are Key to Escaping Poverty. Charlie, welcome. Thank you very much and it's a delight to actually be working with you uh,
1: after a long career where we should have been doing that already.
0: Yep, uh, collaboration (laughs) rather than competition after a long time, although I think there was only one winner out of that competition and it wasn't really me. Um, Let's let's launch into it. Uh, Charlie, in in my work on emerging and frontier markets um, You know, I've always kind of focused not just on equity market valuation and currency risk, but I've always talked a lot about the impact of things like corruption and institutional strengths and weaknesses, uh, the stability of international relations or the unity of a domestic political elite on development and market performance and outlook. But I always kind of sometimes, if you like, as a dirty secret, have wondered whether those are really the symptoms of what's going on as opposed to the causes of what's going on. And one of the reasons why I think your book is so interesting and in a way, to be honest, kind of admirable is because it actually tries something, which most of us, to be honest, in financial markets kind of sidestep, which is actually to try to get to the root causes of development and growth or the lack thereof in in emerging countries. So can I start by asking you perhaps if you could kind of lay out the core thesis in this book?
1: Yeah, the, I mean, and the core thesis came from, of course, getting some things wrong, um, of, of looking at, because of financial markets, we look one, two years ahead at most. Uh, you always assume that somehow life's going to get better in the future. And when countries don't do that, that's what got me asking all the questions which led to, to the book. Um, and the core thesis is that no country takes off um, until uh, you've got at least 70 to 80 percent adult literacy. At that level, people can work in textile mills. I ended up reading um, The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith to look through what does he say about literacy? Doesn't mention it. Because in Scotland, the 1750s, everybody was literate. The Presbyterian Church had made sure that everybody could read and write. Um, So he he took it for granted. And yet there are still countries, mostly in the Sahel region, with under 40% literacy. And there was this woman called... uh, Mary Jean Bowman, who wrote in the 60s, that if you've got under 40%, you don't even grow sustainably. You can't. You can grow between 40 and 70%, but you can't industrialise until 70 to 80%. And and she wrote that in the 60s. I checked the data five six years ago, and it's it's still true. So that that's the precondition for for everything. Is there an exception? Yes, it's the oil. Some of the oil guys suddenly got wealthy because oil exploded, but they had to have a lot of oil and very few people. So there are, of course, a few exceptions, but in the main is education first. Then you've got your textile factory workers, but to get your textile factory, you've got to have electricity. And this took me much longer to work out what the problem was, because if you know you need electricity, why not just build it? And the Chinese just built it, and then the factories got created to meet that supply why wasn't that happening in kenya why wasn't that happening in nigeria and and the reason i've eventually worked out because someone looked at me like i was an idiot was interest rates in kenya are like 15 to 20 percent we can't build electricity and then wait for the factories to come because by the time they come we'll have bankrupted ourselves on the loan interest payments on this electricity that we're not selling properly can't sell because the factories haven't come yet the chinese could afford to do it because their interest rates are two percent and this is the big thing which gets missed in in the whole development debate the uk did a white paper just the other day on development 148 pages i think they don't mention interest rates at all you can't find interest rates in the 148 pages but it's interest rates that determine why china's taken off and kenya hasn't industrialized because they've got the educated people in kenya but not the low interest rates so then the question is why Where on earth is, and that led me eventually, I stumbled across an IMF paper on China saying that half of the rise in savings in the banking system, household savings, which are huge in China, were a direct result of the one-child policy. And that got me looking at fertility rates and that that was the kind of the the light bulb moment. Um, I'm not just talking about electricity, although it is relevant to electricity, of discovering that high fertility countries don't have savings. And if they don't have savings, they don't have high growth. They don't have good governance. They don't have you know, everything you need to, to take off. They don't have infrastructure. Government doesn't look like it works well. And all the issues you first addressed about corruption, uh, institutional weakness, all of that, I would say, is the direct consequence of having high interest rates. When you've got low interest rates, even if you do have corruption, like Korea, I think four presidents, the last time I checked, are in jail for corruption. You've had some of the best development any country's had in 60 years. That's amazing. So almost is the obverse. I actually, seem, corruption seems to be good for growth. Now, I don't, I'm not arguing that. I'm just, uh, But I am saying that it's not getting corruption down as a consequence of getting rich. And getting rich happens after fertility rates have fallen. Um, so that's the, the core thesis. You, you've got to get fertility rates down, which Asia's done, except for Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, you've got to get education, uh, which most of the world's done. Um,
0: and, and that then enables the infrastructure that lets you take off. Fascinating. Fascinating. And, uh, and and if you take that way of thinking, that thesis, and you try and apply it to financial markets and the markets that are in front of us right now, uh, can you give some examples of how that way of thinking shapes your view of, of the financial markets we have in front of us? Yeah, um...
1: And it's, I mean, I'll give you some examples from Eastern Europe and, and Africa,
0: um, although I could
1: probably do more. Um, Eastern Europe, after the 1990s and the Berlin Wall falls, suddenly uh, opens up to capitalism. And these are fundamentally countries with, with lowish fertility, uh, two to three kids on average per woman. And And savings did pick up. And with savings picking up, bank lending rose. So banking became a very interesting story. For, for Central Europe and for the 90s and the early 2000s, every emerging market investor would have considered having some positions in, in Central European banks. When I started looking at Nigeria, I assumed that bank lending, which was about 20% of GDP, would also grow towards 40%, 50% of GDP. But it didn't happen. Bank lending still just under 20% of GDP in Nigeria after 15 years. And the reason for that is because savings aren't picking up. The reason savings aren't picking up is because the fertility rate is five and a half kids. There's just too many children for the parents to have any money to save at the end of the day or the end of the week. So banks don't have cash. So the cost of money becomes extremely expensive. And that then feeds through into local debt markets and the yields that you get if you do invest in Nigeria or dollar bonds as well. Because these countries with low domestic savings, inevit- not almost inevitably, at some point go abroad to try and seek cheaper external financing. Um, So the whole dollar bond kind of explosion out of of Africa in the last 10 years is a consequence of low domestic savings, which is a consequence. So even the development of financial markets themselves that are being driven by these three
0: underlying themes. And I suppose is the reason why you entitled the book The Time Travelling Economist, is that in a sense, this provides to a degree a universal framework. It allows you to compare how some countries look today with how others looked in the past. And then maybe that gives a clue as to whether they're taking the right policy steps or what policy steps they need to take. Is is that the way to then apply this framework?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I wanted to see whether, you know, why didn't Scotland, uh, you know, develop England, say, in, in the 18th century, even though literacy rates were higher? Well, actually, it's because the, the English had the luck of, of cheap energy, coal, easily available. So Scots ended up moving south to go and get jobs in England because at least there was relatively cheap energy. Um, when I look at uh, Asia's development versus Latin America, education, yes, Asia was ahead uh, through the 80s and 90s. Um, and the, the countries that were most ahead in Asia, not surprisingly, the, the the dragons or the tigers, you know, Korea, Taiwan, um, Singapore and and uh, and Hong Kong. Um, and, and they all were the first to get low fertility, the first to get higher education and, and the first to take off, first to get rich. Um, and Latin America was much slower, much slower on education and much slower on reducing fertility. So they had less savings and that brought us the Latin American debt crisis. So looking at Frontier today, there are a number of countries. Frontiers are a very mixed bag, as you know, including rich countries like Estonia and Lithuania and the equity index, but um, but among the, the lower income countries, a lot of them do look much like Latin America in the '80s. And when when Fed hikes rates in 2022, we we run into a debt crisis in Ghana and uh, and elsewhere, Zambia. So we're seeing that we've seen that. We are seeing it replaying. I guess what I'm saying is we also know when some countries are now going to escape the historic cycle of default and default and default. Um, and that's when their fertility rates come down and their, their local savings start to rise. Um, so what's been true for hundreds of years, thousands of years will not be true in five to 10 years time for some countries. And that's, that's so it helps guide us on who are the winners and when they're going to be the winners
0: and when the cycle might break effectively. Yes, yes. Can I ask a a couple of questions maybe to to try and test this thesis? Um, When you talk about education as a a necessary precursor to industrialization, how has that changed in a world of advancing technology? So on the one hand, you have the phenomenon of digitization of consumer services like banking, and that speeds up financial inclusion um, without necessarily requiring a leap forward in in education. And on the other hand, on the factory side, you have automation, um, and you know that might close the window available for those countries that have not yet industrialized. Does that does that challenge this thesis? I haven't seen anything in the financial
1: inclusion, say, aspect of this to change the underlying thesis. So the underlying thesis is I'm talking literacy, not talking about university education. I'm talking about literacy. And there's this good big bid to try and broaden out financial inclusion as if that's going to magic up savings. But if, if, if families have four, five, six kids each, they just do not have savings, whether they've got a bank account or not got a bank account. It's not It'll make a tiny difference. A few pennies will get captured that weren't getting captured. But it doesn't make a dramatic difference. I, I, when you look at microfinance, why did microfinance work in Bangladesh so well and, and hasn't proven so successful in Sub-Sahara? Because Bangladesh, average woman has two kids. Not only does she have time to work, she also has some savings to fall back on if there's a problem and is therefore less likely to fall into arrears on a, on a microfinance loan. Um, and and she's likely to be educated. Bangladesh has done a great job on that. So that's not been the case. We're not finding that success in, in sub-Sahara. The area where technology could be revolutionary to the thesis is, is about services and the internet because all history up till now has been about saying people still need basic textile made goods, t-shirts, and they will get made roughly, in, not the cheapest, cheapest place in the world, the cheapest place with a literate population that's got electricity. And, and that shifts. You know, China used to be that, and then it became Vietnam, and now Bangladesh, and it'll shift and, and elsewhere. So those textile jobs still exist, but that then requires electricity and infrastructure, which is expensive. Ports, roads, trains, electricity. To produce service exports over the internet, requires much less electricity, no roads, no ports, um, and therefore vastly cheaper. And, and as a consequence, I think the working from home thing that we discovered with COVID could uh, could allow uh, a big jump in service exports and dollar revenues. Because really, this is about trying to get hold of savings from the rest of the world. Now you can be lent those savings, which is what happened in the 2010s, or you can make those savings through a current account surplus. Um, And I think services might be that story. And that then would tell us that the fertility rate, I'm arguing in the book, you need below three kids. That's when savings really take off. Maybe four kids would be okay. And that suddenly opens up much faster growth for a whole broader range, particularly of countries
0: in Africa, but also Pakistan. So so effectively, internet-based services doesn't derail the thesis. It just loosens the parameters effectively.
1: Could, it could help us get quicker growth, faster, sooner, and, and all the rest. Um, I mean, the big picture, I mean, this whole book actually stemmed from me going into the LSE library to try and find out, will automation, I was looking at robots at the time rather than AI, will it kill jobs? And I was thinking about Korea doing textiles in the 60s. They, they produced nothing in the 50s. But in the 60s, they started to do textiles, and of course, they, they ran out of labor. As they introduced labour-saving devices, textile mills, they actually ran out of labour, and they had an unemployment. Too, too few people. So, no, technology is all... I'm on that side of economists who always say technology is, creates as many jobs that we don't know what they're called yet as, as destroys. That creates more jobs, which is why we're the most technologically advanced society the world's ever been, and, and everyone's got more people in jobs than ever before
0: yeah and, and and then, on the other side, the financial inclusion, it is a an incredible phenomenon, but it doesn't get over the root problem of a deficiency in savings. So it yeah. increases the wheels of commerce, trade, remittances, but it doesn't get over the basic problem. There aren't enough savings in in a particular country. Yeah, exactly. Okay. When uh, you talk about the link between fertility, interest rates and the provision of electricity how does the emigration of excess labor and then the resulting flow of remittances affect that way of thinking because obviously well, when we look at it, a lot of our markets you know the the pakistan's the philippines the bangladesh's of, of this world the mexico's um you know there's obviously a tremendous reliance for the sustainability of the current account from that flow of remittances. Yep. Is that a, a way of, of generating savings in at least up till now of the last two or three decades in what has been more of a globalizing world? It is, but it's been true, I think, forever. So the thing
1: which really struck me when I was kind of launching this book around East Africa um, was I was in Kampala talking to to Ugandan officials about it. And they said, well, we have many Ugandans leaving now. They're all going to the Middle East, trying to get jobs. And and Uganda's got 80% literacy. It could totally industrialize. The the human capital is there to industrialize. But they've also got this fertility rate of over five kids per woman. They've got massive numbers of kids and um, massive rise in the working age population. But there's no savings in the economy to to provide the jobs. So you have to leave. And of course, that's been happening for 400 years. You go back to European emigration waves in the 18th and 19th centuries. We had a very slow fertility decline. That's why we had a very slow industrial revolution. And people left to try and find work elsewhere in Australia or Canada, North America. Um, in the 1950s, the Irish, um, and this would include some of my family, were, were, were coming over to the to England to try and get jobs. Or we'll go anywhere to try and get jobs because they had high fertility in Ireland but, and high literacy. So well-educated people, but can't get jobs. And then it was the Philippines. Um, and today, I think it's going to be the story out of Nigeria. Uganda, okay. Kenya. President Ruto, just the other day, talking about one hundred and fifty to 250,000 Kenyans needing to go abroad. And that was the story of Mauritius in the early 80s. Mauritius, seen as a bit of a basket case by many in the 70s. They had too much labor. It was never going to work as a country. They were trying to export their surplus population. Today, second richest country in Africa, per capita. And uh, they've moved up the value-added curve, bye-bye textiles, hello, financial services. It's, uh, it's an amazing story. Yes, and, and the point, your, your point being remittances do help, but they can't compensate. They don't give us that massive, they do help, but they don't give us the, the massive amounts of savings you need to build infrastructure. Look, I'm in Morocco, for example. Under three kids now, since the end of the 90s, best infrastructure you'll come across in Africa, probably. Um, and, and that's because everyone's benefiting. It's not too many people and some leaving. It's everybody's got savings. And, and that all feeds into the big
0: banking pool in Morocco. Again, um, wh- when you talk about the high cost of finance in in some of the developing economies, how much of that do you think is down to bad government, you know, rather than just too high a fertility rate? So, you know, things like, persistent high fiscal deficits, crowding out the private sector by government borrowing in the banks, or also another way of looking at it is maybe suboptimal exchange rate policies like sticking to too expensive yeah, yeah, yeah. to fix the currency rate. How much of that is driving the problem of, of too steeper cost of finance?
1: I was, um, I was at a
0: presentation
1: with a, a US official in Nairobi actually about, and he said, Look, let's imagine third, of Kenyan government spending is stolen. That's a pretty punchy number. Um, now imagine it wasn't. That's the size of the budget deficit in Kenya. So if you didn't have corruption, you'd have a 0% budget deficit. And if you had a 0% budget deficit, well, interest rates, I'm saying there's a shortage of savings, but the government's making a huge claim on all those savings. So it's keeping interest rates high. If, if they could run a balanced budget because of they ended corruption, then yes, we get a better story, but I. Yeah, we've got countries that are particularly badly run, you know, Venezuela's spectacularly badly run. But uh, and then we've got countries that have been, been run spectacularly well, like like Singapore. But I don't think on the bell curve of probably you know, you should be hoping on betting on on a Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, I, I I think, I think that's uh, too hopeful, um, yeah, and and. and- What comes with low per capita GDP, because the average governments produce average, you know, results is is we get average levels of corruption, which are very high in in lower-income countries.
0: That's just the norm. Do you think that transformation is easier in smaller population countries? I think it might be. Um, Because you mentioned Singapore, you mentioned Mauritius. Um, I mean, but to be very fair, your first comment was actually on China biggest of all um until recently um but i just wonder if if this transformation at least to the degree that governments can enact policies that prompt it and accelerate it is that not easier in in much smaller population you know homogeneous populations i
1: suspect it i suspect it is
0: um
1: and but 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 every time you can there's always another example that will give you a uh, you know, a different point of view. Eritrea has not done terribly well. It's been a, a rather small population country. And, you know, there's Central African Republic, so we've not got many people in it, but it's got some appalling sets of numbers. South Sudan. I mean, there's. so yes, there's. It, it's much easier to focus on the semi-success stories. Rwanda, I think, has done reasonably well on this. Uh, Singapore, spectacularly well. But it's, now, I, I. I'm sympathetic to the view. But I guess China's shown us as the biggest of all. And indeed, India's following it now. Um, you've got this double demographic dividend. And when it comes in, it doesn't really matter how big or small you are. If you've educated your people, you've suddenly got a much higher share of the working age population who can work and do work. And a lot of the countries that you know, we've got this frontier fund, this FEM fund, and we, we're focusing on places like Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam. They all look just as good as India. They all grow at just the same rate within a percentage point of India and have done for 20 years. And that's because they're all doing the demographic dividend. It doesn't matter who the prime minister or president is too much, as long as they're average, they just have to be average. And I, I looked back at all of the countries that, that I've uh, mentioned in the book, I mean, it's like everyone and Mauritius was average. It did exactly what you'd expect a country to do with its demographic profile over the last 40, 50 years, it wasn't special. It just did what happens when the fertility rate falls. And I think that's, that's, that's what I'm talking about. It's, it's trying to get governments to be average rather yeah.
0: than not deliver any improvement in living standards over decades. Well, perhaps to, to offer one counter example, and coincidentally, it's probably a government that has a history of being anything but average, um, would be Argentina. So yeah. there's a country with high literacy, low yeah. fertility, but so many economic crises, so many sovereign debt defaults. For you, is that an exception to your framework? Let me get to that in a second. I, I just highlight that it
1: wasn't low fertility. Um, in the 1980s, there were only two countries in South America that were low fertility. They were Uruguay and Chile, the only ones to not default in the Latin American debt crisis. And, and that's not a coincidence, of course. They had local savings. Um, and so they didn't need to borrow externally, so they didn't default. That's Argentina did, but you're absolutely right. Argentina's uh, an amazing exception. In fact, I'd argue there's a few that don't don't fit properly with the book in the last five, 10 years, and they are Sri Lanka as well, uh, also low fertility now, and educated, and a manufacturing sector, uh, Lebanon. Um, Venezuela, and I, you know, there's always going to be that's four or five countries out of out of the two hundred or so which just are not fitting the model, um, and they're always going to be a couple of percent exceptions. But um, and they do show that politics does matter. That if you're really unlucky with your politics, yeah, you're you can be stuffed even when you've got all the stuff working for you,
0: the good stuff. Ah, few. So so my <laughs> approach does have some validity. Well, my, my focus yes. on politics and geopolitics does still have a role to play in this industry
1: no it's more more than that no, no, but i would also add another quite important
0: thing which is that your baseline for growth for uh,
1: countries going through the double demographic dividends about four or five percent some countries consistently do seven or eight some countries do two or three and my model doesn't explain that now that that adds up to a hell of a difference over 10 20 years so we do still have jobs. It's not It's you and me. I mean, I'm also looking for a, I know something about Sri Lanka versus, you know, Cambodia versus uh, uh, Nigeria. You know, we all, we all need our,
0: our, so we do matter still. Good, good. From a self interested point of view. Um, so you published this book in the middle of 2022. And yeah. I imagine writing a book is quite a long ordeal. So I imagine you were working on it well before that. If you had to write a prologue or, you know, inshallah, a second edition, because the sales are so strong and there's appetite <laughs> for it, what would you write in that prologue today? What what would you add to this thesis, having digested it and thought about and be quizzed on it over this last year? I had the
1: advantage of, of started <laughs> doing this in in kind of separate thought pieces that were gradually added up to what became a book. So I debated it a lot with clients. And I suppose what I'm finding interesting is is that I've presented this, I don't know, 10, 10 countries so far, uh and I'm not getting the killer challenge to the thesis. So that it it keeps on I so I'm I'm getting slightly uh I'm probably getting more convinced by the argument. Um the two things I would have added and I've mentioned already were maybe internet services is a bigger story, Um, and I I mention it, but perhaps I don't give enough emphasis. The second would be, don't fight the fund. People say, don't fight the Fed, but we've got countries like Pakistan, Egypt, uh, places that Finn partners is also investing in at the moment, because we're assuming that the fund now is is gonna help carry these countries despite their high fertility uh, through this very dangerous period when Fed funds have been high. Um, so yeah, we shouldn't underestimate the the power of the IMF uh, and t- to help out um, at least at least for a couple of years. Cool. Uh, and then lastly, I did hope Ghana was going to get through two thousand and twenty-two. Um, and when I wrote the book, I was still saying you yeah, know it might be it's it's it might get through, and I'd probably I'd, I'd rewrite that line.
0: <laughs> well, Charlie, it has been as I say an absolute pleasure to have you on this podcast, which is actually the inaugural one that I've hosted. And I certainly welcome uh, the opportunity to have you back on in future. I'm sure your, your thoughts, not just on this thesis are gonna evolve, um, but also uh, knowing you from before, there'll be many, many more interesting ideas that, that you generate, and it would be great to have you on again in future. Uh, It's been uh, a joy uh, to have this conversation. Thank you very much. And uh, we hope everyone that you've enjoyed that episode of the Telemer Emerging Market Podcast. Charlie, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much for having me.